about this um, obsession that people have with uh, things being handmade or handcrafted. And uh, did you guys notice any of that this past week as you thought more about that? Anyone notice that? Anthony texted me a photo. I won't say what it was a photo of, but he texted me a photo of something that was handmade. Um, so if you look around, if you, when you go to lunch today, you'll notice this word, these words being thrown around, handmade or handcrafted. We talked about how from trinket shops to restaurants, you will see this concept as part of marketing. Um, it's overused. You see it everywhere. And, uh, and you see it advertised. You never see advertised factory made, right? Like no one ever puts out there like, hey, this was made in a factory. And that's something you're proud about. No one ever advertises that um, with products or whatever else. Uh, with food, definitely not, a, not something for food. And the reason why is it's just too impersonal. It's not, not the same ring as like handmade or handcrafted. And uh, so we love the idea of handmade because it means someone put their heart and soul into something. And, and so uh, if you get like a little piece of wood that is handcrafted or handmade, you can see the marks that someone left um, with whatever tools they use. You can see the marks that someone left in that particular item. And so we talked last week about how um, we're calling the series Handmade Disciples because um, we should be able to see all the little marks that other people have left in your lives. And we talked about how discipling is leaving a mark on someone else's life. And uh, we finished last week asking two questions. The two questions were this. Will you allow your life to mark the lives of others? And will you allow your life to be marked by the lives of others? And we left you there last week, and then we talked um, about how you should be able to tell you should be able to tell someone else, like, who the people are that have marked your life. You should be able to, um, if, if I were to ask you, who are the people, give me names of people that have marked your life in significant ways, you should be able to tell me who those people are. And, and the ways in which they've marked your life, the specific ways in which they've done that in your life. When I think about my own life, I can think of specific individuals that marked my life in positive ways. I think of my own youth pastor in high school, and I can remember a mission trip. Uh, we somehow got past in our church a mission trip to Orlando, Florida, because Mickey Mouse needs the gospel, you know. And uh, so we go to Orlando, Florida, and, um, and we're ministering in this one part of the city, and we're staying in this hotel. And you ever have a friend, I mean, don't look to the right or the left right now, but a friend that you love dearly? but they highly annoy you at the same time, right? Uh, don't look around. Just look, keep looking at me. Look at me. But you have people like that in your life. And I had this one of my closest friends, and he was at times, most of the time, an obnoxious loudmouth. Like he, he just had this personality, and, and it's, it's kind of why I loved him and hated him at the same time, you know? Um, and so we're, on this, we're in a hotel room, and we're staying in this hotel, and it's late at night, and uh, nothing good ever happens late at night on mission trips. And so we um, are having this conversation, and somehow it erupts into an argument, and he and I start going at it physically, all right? Uh, don't follow my example. I'm just being honest this morning with you. Um, and we start this, it's like this, it broke out in this argument, which became physical, and other guys in the group are standing there watching this take place, and our youth pastor is standing right there. He breaks it up, 
And once things have settled down, he just says, he very quietly walks us through what just happened. And something he said to me, I'll never forget, he said, he said, Dave, because what I've observed in you is that sometimes you can, you might be right about something, but you let things kind of build and build and build until you just flip out on somebody. And I'm sitting there thinking like, yeah, I can, based on what just happened just now, I can see how you might say that, you know. And him taking that moment to speak truth into my life, and him giving me, redirecting me into, hey, if you have issues with your friend, maybe you should bring it up in a different way and bring it up earlier before it builds to this level. And so he marked my life in a very profound way. And so I'll hear his voice. I'll see that happen even now, or I'll just kind of let something build and build until I just kind of get angry about something and kind of flip out on somebody. And, and I think about those words and how I've got to heed those words of someone that had a profound impact in my life. There's also some things that I wish certain people had said to me or confronted in me. When I was in high school and even in junior high school, I didn't handle the whole guy-girl relationship thing real well. I was walking off into sin in some of those areas of my life. And there were certain people that never stepped in and said, hey, Dave, like, what's, what's the deal here? Like, what are, you, what are you doing? And I look back and I go, I wish, I wish they'd been more confrontational. I wish they'd said more about those things in my life. So this is why our leaders, I have asked our leaders, including myself, to ask you some hard and difficult and awkward questions at times. And this is what discipling looks like. We gave you a definition last week of what is a disciple. We said a disciple is simply a follower, a follower of Jesus. Everyone today wants to be a leader, not a follower. Why? Because nobody follows followers. They follow leaders. And we said that everybody today wants to be thought of as a leader, not a follower. But this goes counter to what Jesus is asking you to be in relation to him, and that is a follower of Jesus. So a, a disciple is a follower. But this series is less about defining disciple and more about showing you the process of discipling. So we're looking at the process in this series. We define discipling, doing deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. Doing deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. One of my favorite things when I, is when I see our leaders stepping outside of the normal Sunday and Wednesday routine and pursuing time with you. Whether it be grabbing coffee, going to see a movie, going to someone's house, road trips, hikes. I love seeing our leaders invest in your lives in informal ways. The Sunday-Wednesday thing is kind of like just the front door. But our hope is that it goes beyond that into something so much more than just what happens at the programs here on Sundays and Wednesdays. Today we're going to talk about the work of discipling, what it looks like. So turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at just two verses, Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. And you've got to use your Bibles because we don't have Bible on the screen today. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul says, 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here's the first point you can write down. Discipling is always Jesus-centered. Discipling is always Jesus-centered. The first words of this passage, him we proclaim. It's very tempting to make discipling all about us. Does our discipling, does it point people to us as those that are discipling, or does it point people to Jesus? This is always the danger in ministry, this, this cult of personality. Ministry can become an identity. In fact, I struggle with this um, every single day. Every single day I do this job, I struggle with this reality that ministry can become my identity. This preaching and teaching thing that we do in here on Sundays and, and even some Wednesdays, um, this is not something that I sought after necessarily. God just has his ways of calling people into certain things, and this is not something I set out and said, I want to I be a preacher one day. That's, that's not what my intent was when I was 15 or 16 or 17 years old. But I've noticed this teaching and preaching thing is, is kind of like a blessing and a curse at the same time because I love teaching. I love to teach. I love teaching specifically this demographic in here. And here's why I love teaching high school students, because, um, because you, give, you give little to no feedback, and I actually like that. And here's why I like it, because I just can study and pray and prepare, write some stuff down, and get up here and try to just speak to you guys from my heart, and I don't really know what God's doing with it. I just pray that he does something with it. And, and so at your age, you, you guys play things pretty close to the vest. That's fine. But you guys give little to no feedback, which is something I actually appreciate about you. Because I just get to trust God that God's doing something with what happens on this stage. Now, a few years back when I began preaching to adults more, adults are not like that at all. Adults give positive and negative feedback. And so I've gotten the emails, you know. I've had the meetings with, you know, Dave, when you said this, what did you mean when you said this? And, and all this kind of stuff. And, and so it's a whole different animal. And I appreciate teaching adults as well. But the interesting thing is, is whenever you start getting feedback, whether it's positive or negative, you start to question and go, like, uh, you know, you start making ministry about yourself and making it all about yourself and wondering, um, am I doing this the right way? And am I, and you begin to have this identity crisis, in a sense, because preaching can become an identity. How do I perform? How will I do next week? Will you get, you get the same kind of feedback, or will it be negative feedback this time? Like, what's, what's going to happen? And so many Christians, I think, we enter into like the church service, the church service is, is, is just a strange thing because it's this one person talking on a stage and you just, then you just get up and you just walk out. Like imagine if you had real life conversations that were like that. Like you just go to Starbucks and you sit in front of your friend and your friend talks to you for 35 minutes 
more or less. And then you just don't say a word, and then you get up and you just walk out the door. Like, wouldn't that be kind of weird? Right? Yet that's what happens on Sundays here and up there. And so it's a strange dynamic and a strange relationship. And what happens when people walk out of a church building is they say, what do they all say? They say, well, how was it? How, was it good? Was it bad? Was it mediocre? And what they often mean by that is, how did it make you feel? And so if you, if you laughed, if you cried, it's like watching a good movie. It's like every, every emotion was touched on. It just made me feel so great and amazing, and I was just soaring by the end of it. And so you say it was good. If you don't experience that, then you say, yeah, it was, it was okay, right? And so we, we tend to come to the whole church thing with this consumeristic mentality. You know, was I, um, how did I feel after I experienced that church service? And I'm going to challenge you that I think that's the wrong metric for us to look at these things. And here's what I mean by that. If you come in and just asking, how do I feel afterwards? If that's it, and you're not thinking about Jesus, and where it says, him we proclaim, and we make this entire thing about him, and we should be asking the question, did what was said, did it point me to Jesus? How did it, we should evaluate sermons, absolutely, but only in the sense of, did it point me to the cross and to Jesus Christ? So the question um, or the statement we'd prefer to hear instead of, man, that was a good sermon, I would love to hear the statement, man, we serve a good God. You see, the thing with a sermon is the sermon's never meant just to point to itself. It's meant to point beyond itself. And this is the question we should be asking as we think about the church because ministry can prop us up and make us conceited. There's a quote by uh, Tim Keller. He says, Ministry is either going to make you a far better Christian or a far worse Christian than you would have been otherwise. It's going to make you a hard, pharisaical hypocrite or it's going to turn you into a softer, more tender person because it forces you to go to the throne of grace and to beg the Lord for help in your weakness. The ministry will either drive you to him or drive you away from him. And I know some of you hear that and think, you know, wow, I didn't know that ministry was so dangerous. And so maybe I shouldn't really put myself out there because it's such a, it sounds like it's such a dangerous thing. I don't want to get conceited. Listen, God calls us to use our gifts. And you've got to be aware of what's in your heart as you use your gifts. And some of you guys are going to have more public gifts than other people in this room. That's just reality. But you don't shy away from your gifts in fear of being conceited because you just simply bring that to the altar of grace, bring it to the foot of the cross like you do all your other sins. So we don't live in fear of conceit and fear of pride, but we lean into the grace and mercy of Jesus and be, be, becoming aware of what's in our heart as we go. Uh, the point of ministry is not to prop ourselves up, but to, pro, but to point people to 
Jesus. And you're going to struggle with this. You impact captains, you're going to struggle with this. Different leadership styles, my adult leaders, my interns. Some of you all are really good at certain things, and then you're good at other things. And so um, you're going to get jealous, you're going to get envious of each other. And everyone in this room can hear this, that it's him we proclaim. It's not ourselves. It's not us. The second point is, discipling involves warning and teaching. Discipling always involves warning and teaching. You see it in the passage. Part of proclaiming Christ means that we warn and we teach. We warn and teach. Discipling should lead to some awkward conversations. Yes, discipling should lead to some awkward conversations between you as the students, between each other, and also our leaders to you. In today's world, even in the church, everybody wants everyone to stay out of everyone's business. Do you, know, do you notice that? Everyone's like, hey, it's between me and God. Like, you stay out of my business. This is between me and God, and it shouldn't involve you. And mind your own business. Leave me alone. Don't judge me. And that's not, that's not even biblical, that kind of thinking. Discipling means that we, in love, we, we come alongside each other, confronting when needed, in love, correcting sin whenever we need those kinds of things in love and compassion towards each other. It's one thing to stand on a stage and, and just talk about sin generically, but when one of your leaders or a friend sits you down and says, hey, listen, I need, we need to talk. I, I know this is awkward, but that is, a, that is a powerful thing when someone speaks into your life and marks your life in this way. And it's not just talking about their sin, but one of the biggest aspects of discipling is you being transparent about your own junk as well, about your own issues. I tell my leaders, I'm going to tell them this, we're going to have a leader meeting after the service. I'm going to tell them that their transparency will lead to your transparency. And it's true. We've got to understand we cannot just live in hiding and, uh, and we confess our own weaknesses, even as leaders. Mark Dever says, Joining a church is like throwing paint on the invisible man. New sins become visible in the course of our discipling relationships. So think about, that's pretty imaginative. Like, think about an invisible man. You throw paint on an invisible man, you suddenly see him. This is how it is coming into the church. Suddenly, your sins, my sins, become more visible as we're trying to live out these one another's in the body of Christ. And this might make some of you guys want to bail, but this is actually good for your, our souls to have our sin exposed in this way because there's a sanctifying effect that comes from that um, as we enter into the body of Christ. And when I, say, um, when I say discipling involves warning and teaching, I'm not just talking about like us as the leaders you know, warning and teaching you as the students. That's part of it. But I'm also talking about you admonishing each other in the body of Christ as well. Not just leader to student, but also student to student. Because teaching can happen in all the informal conversations that happen between you all. Do you know this is why we do tables on Sunday morning? Because I should not be the only person who has something to say. You didn't know that, did you? 
It's not just my leaders that should have something to say. You should have something to say. If you're walking with Christ and you are growing in your walk with Christ, then you should have something to say to each other. And this is why we do tables on Sunday morning. It's not just a a place to hold your plate. It's not just a place to put sign-up sheets. We are wanting each one of these places of community to be a place where this process is beginning and starting. Where you're starting to admonish and you are teaching and you are warning each other. And you're, in a sense, discipling each other through community. This is also why um, Wednesday nights are geared the way they're geared, because we want you teaching and warning each other in this person-to-person way. It's also why on, at our New York mission trip this past year, I was blown away because I'm walking out to go get breakfast, and one of the students is walking with me, and then he peels off and goes back like behind the place like on this loading dock, and I'm like, where are you going? He's like, well, uh, we've been meeting in the mornings over here for a Bible study before we head out to do our clubs. And it's all student-initiated, student-led. And I was like, that is amazing. Students initiated that. And thought, even in the morning, we want to teach each other and encourage and exhort one another in the Word of God before we head out for um, today. The next point. Discipling brings about maturity. Listen, there's going to be ups and downs. Uh, Discipling never looks like this, like the steady incline. It's never like that. But there's going to be ups and downs, but at the same time, it should still bring about maturity. There should be a general direction that we're all heading, and there should be fruit being born out in your life. There should be fruit. I should be able to look at some of you ladies especially, and, and say, when you came in here as a freshman, you know, you were, honestly, you were kind of boy crazy. And yet, two years later, here we are seeing you as a junior, and man, you were, you seem just settled, you seem at rest in who you are in Christ. And so, yeah, we should see some growth, we should see some fruit that's taking place in your life. For some of you others in the room, when you came in as a freshman, maybe you were just consumed, maybe out of insecurity or just not knowing what to do. You're just consumed with this thing when you walk into this room or Wednesday night. And you're just into your games and into your phone and into your, and then suddenly as a sophomore or junior, like you're, you're, you know, you're putting this away and you're like, you're noticing people and actually, you know, going out of your way and, and making people feel welcome in here. And maybe you're, you're just living differently. And so, yeah, we should see maturity happening um, as we are growing in Christ. The next point, discipling is toil and struggle. Discipling is toil and struggle. Listen, it's hard work. It is hard work. You know, I find it encouraging to know there's this trend in the church today. People will say things like, you know, we got to get back to the way church used to be, like back in the New Testament when it was pure and devoid of any struggle, and it was perfect. And I would just say, have you read the New Testament? I mean, everywhere you look, you see toil and struggle and pain. And Paul's honest. I love Paul's honesty. He admits discipling 
is toil and struggle. And I find that encouraging to know that Paul had the same struggles that we have. Often I think, man, if I was like Paul, I'd be a lot better at this. But Paul wasn't some superman. He struggled just like you and I struggle. And some of you are going to want to check out of this whole thing because of the toil and struggle of discipling. It's always going to feel this way. In fact, the word that Paul used here for struggle, you know what the word is? It's agony. And so discipling can feel like agony, but this should, I think, encourage um, our leaders in the room, knowing that Paul felt the same way. This should encourage you as the students, knowing that um, this is a struggle. This is a struggle for Paul. It's a struggle for us. It's a struggle when you're on the receiving end or on the giving end of that. Next week, uh, Kim's going to talk to you guys about um, barriers to discipling. And I'm sure she's going to dive in on this. What are the things that keep us from engaging each other in this way? Um, The last point, discipling is always energized by Jesus. Discipling is always energized by Jesus. So just in case you think discipling is done in our strength, this Colossians passage is very clear. It's not. It has to be energized by Jesus. You know why discipling seems overwhelming to you or to me? Because we think it's all on our shoulders. Discipling is not about our ability, but about our availability to be used by God. And listen, students, listen. Whatever you receive from these leaders in this room, God gets the credit anyway, not us. God gets the credit. Knowing God's doing the work, this is going to counter pride in our hearts. In fact, one of my favorite passages, look over at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Flip there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. There is division happening in the Corinthian church, and people have all these pers- cult of personality factions. There's a guy named Apollos who's a great speaker. But guess what? He didn't get to write any Bible, okay? Paul got to write some Bible. And some are saying that Paul's not that great of a speaker. Can you imagine that? Like, you're Paul, and some are like, we like that Apollos guy better than Paul. And some people are all about Peter, and there's these factions happening in the church. And Paul is writing to address those factions. He says in verse, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So what is Paul doing? He's doing just what he did in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, where he says, it's him we proclaim. It's him we proclaim. It's not about me or anybody else, but it's Jesus we proclaim. And I love the picture he uses of agriculture because it's such a humbling picture because none of us can say, look what I did. I've used this image before, but imagine if I had some friends over and I took you into my backyard and I said, like, hey, you want to see something really cool? Come over here. Look at this. Um, You see that tree? 
You see that grass? You see those flowers? I did all of that. And the person's looking at me like, what? Like, what do you, you, okay, you planted and you like, maybe you waited for the rain, so you put some water on it, put some fertilizer. But what do you mean you did that? It's like, I did that. Like, I caused the growth of that tree. I caused the growth of the grass and all the flowers. You see all that? That's me. That's me. And I love Paul's picture because what he's saying is we can boil discipling down to this picture. All you and I do is walk around and scatter some seed and we fertilize and we put some water on it, but God causes all the growth. And for you not to take any credit for someone else's journey with Christ and say, you know, see that disciple? I grew that person. Because of me, I grew them. For you not to say that, that's as foolish as you bragging about growing some tree outside. Because all we can do is the simple things that God has called us to do, but God causes the growth. God causes that person's soul to swell up with love for him and, and compassion for other people. And, and I can take no credit for that. And you can take no credit for that. We play a role, but God does the work. A guy named Mark Dever says this. He says, we disciple not just through our strength, but through our weakness. I want you to think about that. We disciple not just through our strength, but through our weaknesses. Again, much of discipling is about, um, as leaders, us being honest about our weaknesses with you and being transparent and open and showing you how the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ has been working itself out in our lives from the time we became a Christian. That's a, that's a picture of discipleship. So for our interns and for our adult leaders in this room, or if you're going to be a G-group leader as an upperclassman, God is going to use your weaknesses and your strengths. You don't approach this by saying, I just don't feel like I'm good at that or I'm good enough. None of us are good enough. But God's going to use your weaknesses and your strength. And he wants to use your weaknesses to display his strength. And here's why I say that, because 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What is the treasure? The treasure is the gospel. The treasure is the message about Jesus. And Paul says, you and I are like a jar of clay that's just sort of broken and shattered, has some holes in it, and yet you contain this treasure, which is the gospel, the message about who Jesus is and the cross. And it's this treasure that shines forth from us because, because of our weaknesses. So when we think about, you know, shrinking back from what God wants us to do and what God's called us to do, you don't shrink back and say, you know, God, I'm just not good at those things. I'm just not talented or gifted. No, you step forward in faith, knowing God's going to use you in powerful ways, not because of you, but in spite of you. And he does it because of the power of 
the gospel. This picture of a jar is a picture of human weakness and frailty and is a picture of us. And so you and I are simply just this jar of clay containing treasure. In order for the, the treasure to shine forth and to be seen as worthy and powerful, it's good that the jar is a little bit broken and has some holes in it because then people will look at the gospel and the treasure and not at just the one that contains it. Let's pray. God, we're grateful, we're thankful for your word and how um, you point us to yourself. We know this whole thing is not about us, it's about you. And we pray, God, that you would help us to grab a hold of that, understand it, to know it, and to live it out with our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, listen, guys, for sake of time, um, we're going to have you guys help us minister to evacuees here in a minute. So here's what we're going to do. Um, instead of doing discussion, I'm going to ask you guys to get all your trash off your tables, and we're going to put all of the chairs and tables